Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to read you the first eight verses of uh, this chapter. Uh, there's a lot of names in it, so if I get some of them wrong, you can uh, just chalk it up to abject ignorance on my part. <clears throat> uh, Hear now that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired in the very mind of God. It's black words on a white page. They read like this. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Jerabiah, Hodijah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart, a faithful, uh, his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that word endures forever. Guys, this is a, this is a fairly difficult chapter to manage uh, for several reasons. Um, the first of which is its length. It's, um, it's only 38 verses, but those 38 verses cover some four pages, at least four pages in my Bible. That's a long chapter, and it's one event, it's one scene, it's one um, <clears throat> narrative. That's part of the difficulty. The second part of the difficulty is the subject matter. This is a chapter about a people in repentance, or a people repenting. Um, a people owning their own sin publicly and before God, and and by definition, that's going to make us uncomfortable. Uh, we want to be told how good we are, not how bad we are. I was, um, I was in a, a meeting this, earlier this week, and the speaker at that meeting was an educator. And uh, he told his audience, I being a part of that, um, he told us that there is no problem that cannot be fixed with the appropriate and proper educational techniques. He said, if it's based on the, uh, the most current research and um, the methodologies growing out of that research, <coughs> pardon me, um, there's just nothing uh, that we can't fix. That's the message that people want to hear today. Uh, this, this, this Nehemiah 9 one, you know, uh, about life is just one long sin, both uh, of omissions and commissions. Nah, not so much. I don't want to hear that. Um, but that's what Nehemiah 9 is about, a people repenting. Um, 
The third part of the difficulty is that even though it's uncomfortable, it is extraordinarily important. Uh, let's face it, guys, um, without repentance, none of us will be saved. Jesus said that. He said it in Luke 13. He said it a couple times. He said it in Luke 13 when he said, um, uh, you will all likewise perish unless you repent. Lest ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish, is what he says in the King James. And it, It's just an important uh, subject, the, the idea of repentance. So, the chapter is long. It is uncomfortable, but it's also important. And thus, what I'm saying is, it's, uh, it's difficult to manage. Guys, um, in my youthful, arrogant days, I used to say, I used to make this claim. I used to claim that I could spot repentance. That is, when people came to my office and they had a story to tell, they wanted to tell me about something that went on, and that I could spot whether... Um, whether there was repentance present. I'm older now. Um, I'm still arrogant. Um, but I'm uh, hopefully a little bit wiser, and I would never make that claim again. Um, but here is a claim that I would make. When the Bible is describing repentance, and by the way, let me, let me, let me just do this real quick before I make my claim. If you look at the chapter, you will notice that's what's going on here. Um, Verses um, uh, verse six is about creation. That is, that they acknowledge that God is the creator. Verses seven and eight, they mention that fact that God chose Abraham and and created this people that became Israel. And then in verses uh, nine through fifteen. They're, they're making reference to the fact that God brought them out of Egypt and out of that cruel bondage and slavery. And then you come to verse 16. Oh, right. You created and you chose Abraham and you created this people and you got us out of Egypt and out of that horrible, cruel bondage that we were in. Verse 16. But, see it? In spite of all that you did for us, they and our fathers acted proudly hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they, did, they were not mindful of your wonders. I know you created. I, um, I realize that you um, established this thing with Abraham and you got us out of Egypt, but that didn't stop us. In the, in the face of all of your kindnesses to us, that didn't stop us from loving our sin. And so... This is a chapter about people repenting. Now, here's the claim. When the Bible is describing repentance, there are certain features, certain component parts about what it says, which you will find every time. Every time you find repentance being described, you will find certain features that are common to that repentance. Um, they may be different because of our different temperaments, and a, but, the, but the features, and call them the lowest common denominators, I don't care. But there are certain things about repentance that will be present, certain characteristics that will always be present. I want to show you three of them from this passage. Three characteristics, three marks of biblical repentance. Now, just real quickly... Um, this, this scene in Nehemiah 9 occurs 23 days 
after the relatively happy event of chapter 8. The people, led by the Levites, sense that there is still some unfinished business. What follows in these four pages is a brief summary of what was being said to God in a 12-hour worship service. That's right, 12 hours. They listened to the scriptures being read for six hours. And then in the second six hours, um, they confessed their sin. So that's what's going on in this chapter. Six hours of hearing from God's word, and this, then six hours of repentance and confession of sin. I'm saying that there are three constants, three characteristics, three marks of repentance that will always be present in those who are repenting, who are repenting. Not to say that I can spot it, but you might try to measure your own by these three characteristics that you that surface from this these statements. There's, there's lots of things that I could draw your attention to, but we're going to just fix our attention on those three. The first thing that I want you to see, the first characteristic, has to do with their clothes, their behavior. Did you notice it in verse 1? Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Oh, my goodness, Dr. Young. If that's characteristic, I'm in big trouble because I don't own a garment made out of sackcloth. That's not the point. The point has nothing to do with their attire. It has to do with this, call it their approach. It's that they are engaged. They are consumed. Gang, do you remember the story, um, David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, one of the darkest sections of the scriptures of the Old Testament, where David commits adultery with Bathsheba, his subject, uh, and then impregnates her, and then finds out that she's pregnant, and then uh, tries to navigate that. It fails. And so his, his solution is to have her husband placed at the front lines of the army so that he would be killed, which happens. So he, in essence, has her husband murdered. Nathan the prophet comes to see him and says, David, we know what you've done. God knows what you've done. David melts in repentance. Then he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, his penitential psalm. And in that psalm, I think it's verse 16 and 17, you find this statement or at least something close to it. He says, you do not desire sacrifices. It's not the blood of goats and bulls that you want, because if you did, I'd give it to you. If that would remedy my situation, I would give you as much blood as you want. But that's not what you want. What you want is a broken and a contrite heart. That's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. This, this picture in verse 1 of, a, of fasting in sackcloth and ashes is, a, is, a, is almost a metaphor of people who are, who are offering a broken and a contrite heart. They are not reading from the prayer book. They're, they're not walking through a set of well-known, well-rehearsed lines as if they were reading from some script. They're not looking for just the right words. They aren't mouthing things that they've said numerous times before. Oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. 
That they're not doing this as a part of a corporate worship experience. Like we, uh, we have a bulletin and the bulletin says the hymn of praise and then the pastoral prayer and, and then the offering. And oh, here's the time of, of corporate, com- corporate uh, confession of sin. It's right there in the bulletin. It's time for corporate confession. That's not what's going on here, ladies and gentlemen. This is not some kind of casual nod to the obvious. If anything summarizes it, Jesus does in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are they that mourn. They're in mourning, ladies and gentlemen. They're in mourning over their sin. One of the chief characteristics of repentance is that, is that broken and contrite heart that leads to mourning. And, and they're gripped, folks. And this is not the regret of finally getting caught. It's the weight of their sin. It's, um, it's not just funish, punishment that they fear. These tears that in this, in this chapter don't come from ducks that are, that are so afraid that, oh my goodness, I've gone too far this time. My goose is really cooked. No, no. It's the weight of sin that presses down on them. The vileness and the, the noxiousness of their own sin. And they say it a dozen different ways in this chapter. And one of the, one of the things that they do is that while they're talking, they're throwing dust up in the air. Oh, how quaint. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. The scene here is one of a people who have been pressed into mourning by the weight of their sin. I don't know what other words to give you. People who, are, who repent are engaged, they're consumed, they're serious about their understanding of what they've done. That's the first characteristic. Here's the second. So much of this chapter can be rightly understood if you'll just realize this, that what you find in in, in Nehemiah chapter 9 is being said Godward. That is, God is not saying this in Nehemiah 9. The people are saying it about themselves. Um, All of what's being said in, in Nehemiah 9 is directed at God, not some priest. It's as if it's one big old, and we're back to Psalm 51, it's one big old Psalm 51 4. Where David says in his penitence, he says, against thee and thee only I have sinned. You ever thought about that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you know what David did? He took advantage of one of his subjects. He slept with her, impregnated her, and then had her husband murdered. And then he has the gall to say, against thee and thee only I have sinned. What about Uriah? What David is saying is that he realizes that before he could ever get to Bathsheba, 
He had to trample the law of God beneath his feet. Before he could ever violate her, he must violate it, the law. And he recognizes that my sin is done in the face of a long-suffering, merciful, faithful God. And so what follows in this, psalm, in this chapter, ladies and gentlemen, you will note what they're doing is giving you almost a survey of Old Testament history. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a survey of redemptive history. You've got chapter 6, I mean verse 6 is about creation. Verse 7 and 8 is a reference to Abraham and, and Genesis 12 through 50. Then in verses 9, 9, 9 through 17, you get the references to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's even a, a specific mention of Kadesh Barnea in verse 17. Then in verses 23 through following, 22 and following, there is an allusion to Joshua and the events of the promised land. And then in verse 29, verses 26 through 29, there's the references to the period of the judges. And then in verses 30 and following, <clears throat> there's a reference to, in, in essence, an allusion to verse, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. Do you see what they're doing? This whole long 38 verses that covers four pages is a review of redemptive history. It's as if they're saying, we know what you've done for us. And we still sinned. Ladies and gentlemen, in this section of this chapter, the terms you and yours are used 85 times. Just look at verse 28 as an example. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven and made, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. 85 times in this section, ladies and gentlemen, they mention, he mentioned, the, the, the chapter mentions you and yours. Because what they are doing, ladies and gentlemen, is that they understand that what they've done is in the face of goodness. Against thee and thee only I have sinned. We remember those days of you getting us out of Egypt. We remember the fact that you, that you chose and called Abraham and creation. We remember what you did in the book of Judges and how the promise. We remember all that. And you know what? It didn't stop us. We've sinned in the face of mercy. You see, guys, th that should give you some idea about the, the intensity of their mourning. They recognize that God has done this, and he's done this, and he's done this, and he's done this. But we still chose our sin. Does that sound familiar? It's not just we sinned. We sinned in the face of all this. All the goodness that you have displayed towards us. 
I'm saying that repentance is always earnest. Biblical repentance. And biblical repentance is always directed at God. Before I can sin against you, and I do sin against you, before I sin against you, I've got to sin against God, the merciful, long-suffering, faithful, good God. I know what you did. I know of all your wonders. And it's as if I said to you, I still want my sin. My God. And then the third characteristic of biblical repentance is that you'll notice that in this chapter that all attempts at a positive spin are abandoned. Blame shifting stops. Guys, you remember the story in Genesis 3, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, serpent, apple, you know, all that business. Do you realize that the second recorded sentence that comes out of the mouth of Adam is an attempt on his part to explain his sin by claiming to be a victim? Oh, the reason that I did this, God, is the woman that thou gavest unto me. Um, Shifting the blame to someone or something else. Guys, that's our default mode. If, If we ever see our sin, we try to find someone else or something else to blame. Oh, well, my problem is, you see, you know, the reason that I'm so, uh, I'm so, uh, you know, uh, such so wicked, uh, you know, is because my parents got a divorce at an early age when I was just a child. The reason that I, you know, that I'm such a wicked person is because I have low self-esteem. Ah, well, the reason that, you know, that the reason that I, is the woman. The reason that I'm, uh, that I'm so, so, uh, so whacked up is, uh, you know, because um, I've got an, I had an alcoholic father. I was in a meeting years ago, ladies and gentlemen, with a group of preacher types, clergy, room full of preacher types. And one of the guys in that, wasn't me, I promise, but it was one of the guys in that meeting just lost his temper. He blew up in the room, stood out, got out of his chair and started railing at everybody and cursing. I mean, using really foul language. I mean, really bad stuff and, and, and ranting and raving and he stormed out the door. Somebody went to check on him, and they came back, and they said, uh, well, the reason that he did that is because he has low blood sugar. (laughs) Guys, I'll grant you that sin never takes place in a vacuum. Uh, Other people's sin do affect me. We're all victims in one degree or the other, yes. But we are also agents. That is, we make choices in response to the various stimuli that come our way. We we choose to respond to temptation, and it's not because of my alcoholic father. My alcoholic father didn't make me chase down that website. My alcoholic father didn't make me have an affair. What I'm saying, guys, is in Nehemiah chapter 9, you will notice, and I'll show it to you, 
It's in verse 33. If you, if you still got your Bibles, look at verse 33. This is, this is how they talk. Verse 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Do you see what they're saying? God, everything that's happening to us, we deserve. We deserve what you're doing. You have been just in all of your actions towards us. The problem is not you, God. We're the ones. We're the ones that have acted wickedly. All of this attempt to try to find somebody to blame for my sin, that's over in biblical repentance. It's earnest. Oh my goodness, it's a broken and a contrite heart. It's Godward. Before I can ever sin against you, I've got to sin against him. In all attempts to, to blame somebody else for what I did, that's over. And when God the Holy Spirit authors repentance in me, I take responsibility for what I've done. You know, ladies and gentlemen, nobody becomes a Christian. There's no conversion apart from owning, taking responsibility for my own sin. In, 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 in one sense, before we ever come to Christ, we've got to come to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33, where we say, in our own words, God, everything that you've done is right. I'm the problem. Um, but guys, I would say to you that only grace allows us to see my sin as God sees it. And by the way, grace is also to be found in this chapter. Let me show it to you. I would say to you that the centerpiece of the entire book of Nehemiah, not just this chapter, the centerpiece of the entire book of, the, of Nehemiah is verse 17, just the last half of it. Look at what he says, or look at what they say. In 9.17, they say this. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. You should have forsaken them. You should have tossed them aside. In view of all that they did, you should have washed your hands of us. But you didn't. Guys, I want, to, I want to point this out. Before you can say what is said in verse 33, you must realize the truth of verse 17. No one says verse 33 until they realize the beauty of verse 17. Nobody can be honest about their sin who doesn't realize that he is willing and ready to pardon. Gang, 
Um, you, you have to notice that verse 17 precedes verse 33. And it's people who understand this about God who can finally be honest about their sin. You know, there's a, a section in the Old Testament. It's called the Minor Prophets. It's at the back of the Old Testament. It's all those strange names, Haggai, Zephaniah, you know, Hosea, Jonah is back there. But there's one guy back there whose name is Micah. Micah um, is a book that we ought to study one of these days, but when Micah finally realizes that God is willing to pardon, this is what he says. He says this in chapter 7, verse 18. This is what he says. When he finally recognizes the truth that I'm trying to explain, this is what he says. Who is a God like you? That's all he can say. When I recognize the depth of my sin and that you are willing to pardon it anyway, who is a God like you? Guys, there's a scene in the New Testament I think you know about it. I don't think I'm insulting your intelligence. I hope not. Um, but I think you know about this scene. It's when Jesus is crucified. And um, uh, he's crucified between, in between two, uh, they, they say, uh, thieves. The, the Greek word is, is really bigger than that. It's, um, I think the better word is criminals. He's, he's, he's crucified between two criminals. Remember that? Jesus is in the middle and there's two criminals. And, and one of the criminals, we'll call him criminal number one, criminal, criminal number one turns to Jesus and says, hey, 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 Jesus, I mean, if you really are the son of God, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And then criminal number two turns to criminal number one and he says, do you not even fear God? We indeed justly, for we, we receive the due reward of our deeds. You know what he's saying? You know what criminal number two is saying? He's saying the same thing that you find in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33. I deserve judgment, he says. I'm getting what I deserve. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I recognize I'm getting what I deserve. But can I have grace? And Jesus says, yes, today you'll be with me. I know, oh God, I deserve judgment. But can I have grace? And ladies and gentlemen, the answer that thunders from this book over and over and over again is yes. 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you ever come to the place where you finally feel the weight of your sin, then you need to go to the same place that criminal number two went. You go and you say, I know I deserve judgment based on all this. But can I have grace? And what God does is recognizing your sin, he sends his son to pay for it transfers the burden of your guilt to him. Jesus Christ dies in my place and then says yes to my request for grace. And the only thing that I have left to say about that is in the words of Micah. Who is a God like you? Our Father, thank you for a reminder that we have sinned against faithfulness. We have... um, sinned against long-suffering, and yet you are willing to pardon. Oh God, would you, um, would you remind us that those, like criminal number two, those who long for Christ can have him. And I pray that you will create that longing in somebody's heart this morning. That they might see that the thing that they need worse, more than anything else, is forgiveness of sin to be found only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that they, like so many others of us, will look one place for reconciliation. That they will look where the criminal number two looked to Christ and him crucified. Might we all live the rest of our days struck with the wonder to say along with Micah, who is a God like you? We love you, Lord God. We're sorry we love you so little. In view of what you have done to save us, might we love you more. Do that for Jesus' sake. Amen.